Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two segments today, we'll hear first from David Adler and Matt Kierkegaard, who have been in, respectively, Chile and Honduras, observing on behalf of the Progressive International. And then public defender Sara Lustbader will talk about the problems of viewing high-profile trials as political events. We're joined first by two electoral observers for the Progressive International, an organization jointly founded in 2018 by the Democracy in Europe movement and the Sanders Institute. Matt Kierkegaard has been in Honduras observing their recent presidential election, and David Adler has been in Chile as it chooses a new president. In 2009, the president of Honduras, Manuel Zelaya, was overthrown in the coup that was backed by the U.S., with then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton a major actor in the event. There ensued more than a decade of violence, repression, and corruption under President Juan Orlando Hernandez and his National Party. The National Party's candidate, Nasri Asfura, was defeated in elections held on November 28th by Giomera Castro, who, while married to Zelaya, is very much her own political figure. Matt Kierkegaard has been in Honduras watching the proceedings. This interview was recorded a few days ago before the results were officially certified. And Chile held the first round of a presidential election on November 21st. There will be a runoff between the top two candidates, José Antonio Cost and Gabriel Boric, on December 18th. Cast is very far to the right, a fan of the neoliberal dictator Augusto Pinochet, and Bort comes out of the left student movement. That movement was an important part of a popular uprising over the last few years that led to the formation of an assembly to rewrite Pinochet's constitution. The uprising was read as a popular repudiation of Pinochet's legacy. A popular slogan from not all that long ago said neoliberalism was born in Chile and it will die there. And now a Pinochet admirer has a good chance of becoming president. What happened? David Adler has been in Chile observing the proceedings. The first voice we'll hear is Matt Kierkegaard's talking about the Honduran elections. Matt, was this a bit of a surprise, these election results? Not so much, Doug. I mean, they've been, you know, the power that has been building uh, on the ground here really since, since the coup uh, in 2009. It's been a long process, but it's been sustained. And I think that most Hondurans were not so surprised with the results as they were surprised with the peacefulness of the process, up until now, at least. The results have not been officially certified yet, right? That's right. So far, there's about half of the vote counted, with Ziomara Castro, um, presumably the new president of Honduras, the first woman president to be elected here, uh, with a 20-point lead. We know that she's the wife of uh, the the overthrown president, Manuel Zelaya. Uh, but what else do we know about her politics? One thing that's really crucial to, to mention is that, you know, Ziomara Castro, yes, she is the wife of Manuel Zelaya, who was, again, overthrown in 2009. But she's, you know, this is really her campaign. She led the campaign itself. She's been calling for you know, the decriminalization of abortion. She's on the campaign trail repeatedly mentioned uh, the possibility and the the hope for refounding Honduras with a new constituent assembly to do away with the broken structures that exist and to, you know, really refound the country in a in a significant way, and also just for stability after 12 years of murderous violence, of foreign interference, um, and frankly, the conversion of, of Honduras into a semi-narco state. Yeah, now this outgoing president, uh, Hernandez, is quite a character, right? He's a corrupt right-wing drug lord. Allegedly. Allegedly, <laughs> uh, allegedly yes, allegedly. Um, how pervasive is this stuff in, in the country? It's incredibly pervasive. But, you know, this, is also, this was also one of the really joyous moments of, of the campaign. I was at you know, the, the headquarters of the night of the election, and for about uh, six hours straight, uh, they were playing a song calling for, starting out with the, the beginning of, of New York, New York, um, and moving into a, a more, you know, uh, upbeat Honduran song about the extradition of Ho, as they call him, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, to New York on drug trafficking charges. So it's incredibly pervasive at the at the highest levels of government. In the in the day to day experiences of of you know average Hondurans, it's violence and extreme precarity caused by this 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 disintegr- disintegration not only of the state but of really the the social fabric itself. 
There's a third candidate, Yanni Rosenthal, um, who just got a federal prison for money laundering. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, you know, to be honest, they, they, I haven't heard too too much about Johnny here. There's been, um, you know, the Liberal Party was, of course, the party that Manuel Zelaya was on the ticket before the creation of the the Libre Party after after the coup. They won a significant amount in in Congress, about somewhere in the neighborhood of of, of twenty deputies out of one hundred and twenty eight. So they will continue to be a force, but I think they they're now you know, a sort of vestigial holdover party of a different era. And, well, it really remains to be seen how, how relevant they'll be now. I was reading some of the U.S. coverage of the election, the Washington Post, New York Times, and uh, neither was very um, forthcoming about the coup, the 2009 coup, uh, the U.S.'s role in that, Hillary Clinton's role in that. But also, um, they seem to be downplaying the results, as, uh, as the Washington Post put it, Results appear to def, uh, reflect a deep dissatisfaction with the National Party more than ideological support for Castro. How true is that? That is a, a half-truth at best. There is certainly near-universal discontent with the, the current state of things and with the ruling National Party itself. But the la, la Alianza, you know, this alliance between the, the centrist candidate of Salvador Nahralla and the, the candidacy of, of Xiomara Castro, you know, is really a, 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 a popular government. I mean, it will be a popular government. It's a popular program. And Libre has advanced program of with real economic reforms, with real social reforms, as I mentioned, you know, decriminalizing abortion. This has been, you know, as you drive around the streets of Tegucigalpa here, you see on so many buildings, this message being conveyed in, in graffiti um, all across the streets. I think it would be a real mistake to classify this just as a rejection of the current government, but much more an embrace of, of hope and renewal and the aspiration for national unity to bring something better. I, that's, that's clearly present here. And the celebrations on election nights, the overflowing support and, and Libre flags in the streets, I think, reflect that. And what about the forces that brought us the 2009 coup, both in um, Honduras itself and in Washington? Um, are they going to mobilize and uh, repeat their uh, performance? This is the question. I think in a real sense, this is why, why international observation, international electoral observation is, is so critical that we have eyes on the ground from a range of, of different uh, you know, civil society and, and progressive political forces from across the world here at present in Honduras. To, to really keep an eye on on how things are progressing. Currently, you know, the, the vote count is progressing apace. It's I have confidence that it will it will be completed and that we will be moving into the, the peaceful transition of, of government. On the other hand, you know, the military after after 12 years of receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in US security assistance aid, military aid, and deepening ties with, with U.S. security apparatus and intelligence apparatus has grown stronger. I think that's, that's uh, unequivocal. So they have, a, they have a stronger hand to play here. I haven't seen any signs for, for concern yet, but it's something that I think the international community has to stay constantly vigilant of and you know, not discount as a possibility. What are the ties uh, between um, the outgoing president and his circle uh, and the local oligarchy? Or is, does he represent them? Is that who the, the army would be acting on behalf of? Or is the army its own independent power base? There are numerous forces that, that, that exert a lot of power in this, in this space. But I think, as you mentioned, you know, the, the local you know, oligarchy is divided. I think there are certainly elements that would prefer a continuation of, of the National Party narco state status quo but i think there is also a significant base of that of that oligarchy if you if you want to call it that um, that has thrown its support behind this new popular alliance especially the, the part represented by nasrala um, you know this centrist candidate who came on as as vice presidential candidate with with Xiomara Castro so you know i i do believe that there's there's enough support from sort of the local the local bourgeoisie to ensure a transition into to government, but also there's the, the force of, of drugs themselves. Um, and this is a world that, you know, to be to quite, be quite honest, I, I don't have a good sense of the, the contours of, other than that it's omnipresence and has the power to exert a great deal of influence through violence and through, through the government. Um, and so it really, I think, remains to be seen how, how the forces of drug money and, 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 and this narco state proceed. Um, you know, with their death squads and 
paramilitary forces that are also partially uh, intertwined with the military. It's it's a complex, shadowy relationship behind behind the scenes. But I, I don't think that you know that there is unanimous agreement at the, by the powers that be uh, in favor of the National Party. And I noticed that uh, Castro is uh, reputed to support some kind of uh, universal basic income. What's the extent of that? And also, what else uh, can we expect uh, as an agenda? Yeah, I mean, so Manuel Zelaya in, in 2000 and 2009, you know, one of the one of the, the real preceding incidents for the coup itself was what they call here the La Cuarta Urna, which is the fourth ballot box, which was this I, this proposal of his to just uh, consider rewriting the Constitution. Um, you know, it was going to be a plebiscite to say, would you support this idea or not? Just even with that possibility, the this is this is sort of where the where the coup proceeded from. This is still on the agenda, even though you know Salvador Nasrada has come out today to say that he does not support the a new constitution um, and a new constituent assembly. I, I think this will be, as we've seen in other countries, you know, including Chile and Peru most recently, it, it will be a, it will be a decisive factor for for how much real change can happen. If there's the capacity to to remold the structures of government and to and to proceed with new economic and social rights. It opens up new possibilities that are not so easily rolled back uh, by a, by a change of power. Now, I, I I don't think this is necessarily top of the agenda. I, at the top of the agenda is really just getting the situation um, under control, bringing peace to the country, and as you said, you know, deepening or expanding the economic prosperity of, of the average Hondurans through something like a like a universal basic income, through land reform through the expansion of, of rights to indigenous communities and Garifuna communities. All of this is, is really at the top, but, but, but more than anything else, I think it's just going to be a, a restoration of, of order and peace and, and prosperity. And we'll see if the oligarchy goes along, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's uh, the voice of uh, Matt Kierkegaard. Uh, and now we'll turn to his uh, progressive uh, international colleague, um, David Adler, who's been in Chile. David, um, a few months ago, we were talking about uh, the constitutional referendum in Chile, and it was going to be uh, – it symbolized a repudiation of Pinochet and decades of neoliberalism that came after Pinochet. And here we are with a big Pinochet fan, brother of uh, someone who's in his government, with the possibility of becoming president of Chile. What happened? I think – it's critical to situate these presidential elections precisely in the context of that constitutional assembly process, because we tend to think of these elections as kind of horse races between personalities or at their most ambitious between policy programs. But the stakes are even higher in Chile after you know, the largest mobilization that we witnessed basically from 2019 onward. The pandemic put a bit of a damper on the mass raging and sustained protests that emerged under Piñera against kind of the regressive neoliberal policies that he was overseeing that led, of course, to the Constitutional Convention and this really hopeful moment. I mean, it's impossible for Matt or me uh, to really express the outpouring of excitement. I mean, we were just there on the ground listening to people tell the story very emotionally about what it felt like to have an opportunity to rewrite this constitution, to open up uh, a, a new chapter in the country's history in a way that they never thought they'd have the opportunity. But now we're faced with two candidates who see that process in opposite ways. Gabriel Boric, 35 years old, former leader of the student movement in Chile, and speaking very vocally on behalf of that protest movement, but also the ambition for a new constitutional assembly, who wants to support, who wants to give space and legitimacy to the constitutional convention process. And the other, this Pinochetista, Jose Antonio Cast, hardcore Christian, misogynist, xenophobe, we'll get into those policies a bit later, who campaigned actively to prevent that constitutional assembly process, who still denigrates and wants to kind of discard that constitutional assembly process, and who will have the power not just to speak ill of the constitutional assembly process, but basically to starve it of resources. We've seen even under Pineda that when these constituent assembly members were taking their seats in their new offices, there was like no Wi-Fi and like that, no water. We think of these ways where once something's decided in the public view, like it'll be given the resources to succeed. But in this case, because the convention process runs in two parts, the drafting and then the ratification, that means that there's a lot of room to win a communications war to say this thing is stupid and dumb and don't 
support it, but also just to paralyze or sabotage that process. And so maybe Matt can speak a bit more about how it was possible that cast, I think no one in Chile two years ago would have ever predicted that this guy would be uh, leading in the polls and would have taken the first round in the lead. It's certainly the first time in a generation that a front-running presidential candidate not only endorses a legacy of Pinochet, saying things like, if Pinochet were alive today, he'd vote for me, but also has plans and policies to revive that legacy and move Chile you know, decades into the past. But Matt, maybe you, can you say a bit more about how you think it's possible because you've been tracking these polls for a long time. A lot of it has to do with the migrant crisis that's currently afflicting so much of the world, but also is very present in Chile and especially uh, with, the, with the presence of you know, immigrants traveling all the way from, from Haiti and from, from Venezuela and cast, you know, he's not a new figure. Uh, he's been on the scene before he's, he's, he ran for president in 2017 and utterly failed. But he, he gained traction in this election, um, somewhat surprisingly, because he went, to the, he went to the border and filmed interviews with, with the folks there in the camps and with the, 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 you know, the, whatever, the Chilean communities on the border as well, with a, with a sort of new tone, with you know, the same draconian and, quite frankly, inhuman uh, policies that we've seen people like you know, Donald Trump or... Marine Le Pen in France uh, propose and, and, and run on, but with not so much of a, not a fiery anti-immigrant uh, tone in his speech, but a tone of, of love and mercy and that, you know, we need to construct a border apparatus to interdict these, these migrants, not because we hate them, but because we love them. Um, and because it's for their own good, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he ran a, he ran a, a famous ad that, you know, was, was utterly condemned. But just to sort of illustrate his tactic here, you know, a photo of, of a Haitian immigrant who, a single mother who was killed in police custody. I think it's still an, an open investigation, but killed in police custody, saying how, how tragic this situation was and that the, the reason for this was not a violent police force or um, the violence of borders themselves, but in fact, you know, open borders caused this tragedy um, and that he was the only one strong enough and, and caring enough to do what was needed to be done, which in, in, in his policies is, in fact, you know, create uh, uh, Chilean ice and to create a, a system of, of guard towers and drones and ditches all throughout the Chilean borders to, um, to stop migrants. So it's all the same policies as we've seen before, but with a new face. Exactly. But I think that's but I think that that Doug reflects something that is actually really important once we look at the broader Latin American landscape, which is that right wing populism, whatever we want to call it, this kind of neo fascist authoritarian right has been ascendant across the region. But I think it's it's really interesting to see. We spoke a bit about Honduras and the way in which the Honduran politics is always in communication with Washington, and I think the same thing is playing out here. Which is, I want to say, make a bold claim here, but. It's hard to imagine Bolsonaro not just winning, but having such confidence and bravado in his presentation in the absence of Trump. So there's a kind of reflection effect that happens with the United States. And so I think that cast would have a different tone and posture were there to be a Trump in office. But there's a sense, I think, across the Latin American far right uh, or conservative to far right, that that's really not going to fly. It's not really the, the, the mood right now to be so braggadocious about your admiration for military dictatorship, about your affiliation, in his case, family connections to Pinochet and, and the Wehrmacht more broadly. Um, and so I think, you know, this is a really interesting dynamic to see how those these new figures on the on the Latin American right, which, as Matt said, programmatically are indistinguishable from the Bolsonaros and elsewhere, are slightly adjusting the tone of the policies, the framing of the policies, so they're sort of they're less impeachable, you know, so that. Uh, and we see this uh, in our own efforts from the perspective of the Progressive International trying to mobilize parliamentarians around the world to care about these contests. Where they're like, well, you know, it's not as bad. You know, there's a <laughs> sense in which that stuff actually ends up mattering, even on that comms level, the PR level. And that's, I think, what makes Cass so dangerous. He's, he's not Bolsonaro. Uh, you see him on stage. He doesn't look like a psychopath. I mean, I think his face is quite evil, but that's an aesthetic judgment. I think he's playing as a more subtle game. And that 
gets in the kind of craw of especially the U.S. foreign policy establishment. We're like, uh, can we say something or not say something? Even though by the letter, this guy threatens to really just bring Pinochet back 2.0 for the 21st century. Well, we're seeing some similar things in the American right. Uh, we got Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, both sounding uh, like they're friends of the working class, enemies of Wall Street and big capital. They're appropriating some kind of left populist rhetoric to go uh, with uh, the xenophobic right wing stuff. Yeah, there's nothing, I want to be clear, there's nothing, I guess the only difference is there's nothing really populist about caste. I mean, some of the social policies play towards conservative values and the xenophobia, I think also the law and order stuff. But in terms of the policies, this is a program of rampant privatization, liberalization. This guy's a climate change denier. In the whole gamut, uh, there's nothing really popular in the kind of mass political sense about, about the program. He's like a billionaire with you know millions documented in, in in tax havens, so he comes from that sector of the kind of neo-colonial elite um, in Chile, and and of course is heavily backed by a capital for that reason. It's the social policies that are swinging larger sections of the electorate, and the question will be, is that it's sufficient number? Uh, it's kind of a numbers game. Is it a sufficient number to get him over the line, or is the reaction to that? Uh, neo-fascistic agenda going to be enough, whereas the sense of loyalty to the Constitutional Convention process, as well as the excitement to endorse and embrace the program of Gabriel Boric, which is feminist, eco-social democratic, we might say, is that going to be enough to kind of contest and and, and win out uh, for, for the left and, and center-left in Chile? Now, the appeal of caste social agenda, is it the anti-immigrant stuff, or is it also um, misogyny and, anti- and homophobia and, and the rest of that package? For sure. I mean, it's 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 a package that we, I think, know well. And it's also critical to emphasize the extent to which caste is leading a really effective red scare in Chile. I mean, I was there watching the presidential debates and he literally just brought out a Cuban flag. Like, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing here? And so tagging Boric as a communist creating this dynamic, uh, trying to, to, to say that, what is that? Chilezuela is their reference, right? Uh, he's going to create a new Venezuela in Chile if you elect this crazy communist, which is just hilarious looking at the actual program of, of Gabriel Boric and, and, the, and the very US democratic socialist agenda that he's proposing. Uh, but that's a line that sticks. It sticks in lots of countries, but it's the question of how many people uh, find it convincing. Uh, and the problem is that Chile's media which is true across the region, is just so bought, paid for, and corporatized that uh, it's tough to break through from the perspective of we're, we're not communists, which of course has its own complicated dynamics politically. Is the memory of Pinochet been rehabilitated at all? Matt, you want to take that one? I mean, my sense of the memory of Pinochet is that it never left. I mean, I think that um, for a lot of people, it's the motivating force, right? Never again, no pasta done. We will not have this again in our country. But uh, we're dealing with a country with just profound uh, levels of political disenchantment and apathy that stretch back into the dictatorship and even through democratization, where the concertación, where the group of democratizing forces never really motivated, built a kind of, never felt like it was true to, to, to people's needs and desires to the extent that it could get people out. So, you know, we complain about voter turnout in our presidential elections of around 55%. Like it's hovering around 40 in Chile. I mean, this is, it's an absurdly low level of turnout for elections with such absurdly high stakes. So when it comes to like whether Pinochet is a trigger word, more internationally than it is domestically, which of course is terrifying, but that's not to say there's a section of people who are totally scarred, sacrificed, lost family members and, 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 and live in, the, tr- in the, the traumatic shadow of that dictatorship. But I think it's, it's not like you say the word Pinochet and it just sticks and you know, no, no person can come back from that. I don't know, Matt, what's your assessment of the living legacy of Pinochet? No, only, only to, I think you summed it up well, I think only to add that, you know, Chile has now in a level of transformation that we, it's hard for us to imagine in, in the United States, you know, in our ace of, of every two years, there's, there's these elections. I mean, in Chile, there have been five elections, dramatically important constitutional assembly, presidential, uh, you know, elections in the past, in the past year alone. Those come out of almost two years of sustained incredibly violent uh, and repressive responses from the police to, to, to the protests in Santiago and across the country, an ongoing indigenous liberation struggle in, you know, in the south of the country. So there is just a, a great deal of, of political change happening. And I do think 
Doug, to your question, there is, uh, you know, there isn't perhaps a segment of society that just wants to return to order, that just wants to return to some sort of semblance of, uh, you know, sort of what, what was the hard-fisted rule of, of the Pinochet years. Now, I, wouldn't, I don't think this is a majority society. I don't think it's enough for, for cast to, to, to win, frankly. But I do think that there is a segment of society that feels that way, and you're seeing that expressed in his candidacy. Yeah, finally, um, a while back we were talking about the possibility of a pink tide 2.0. Um, what's the status of that these days? I think that it's critical to distinguish between the dynamics of the pink tide 1.0 and pink tide 2.0. Pink tide 1.0 was defined by large, sweeping, impressive mandates for progressive and left leaders to implement massive social transformations, uh, economic transformations in their countries. In the time since, the right has become much more sophisticated in the deployment of legal warfare tactics, uh, misinformation, social media manipulation, these kinds of things, things that operate more in the cover of darkness, less in the realm of tanks rolling through the streets of Rio de Janeiro or whatever. And so Pink Tide 2.0, I mean, I think we do see a familiar dynamic as we see in Honduras or Chile, mass movements, mass popular movements rising up to demand transformational change in their countries, more fairness, more feminism, more ecologism, et cetera, and more repressive tactics from a small elite uh, that is uh, becoming more sophisticated. But in that sense, Pink Tide 2.0 is not going to be defined by large majorities. Even if Borge gets it over the line, as we saw like in Peru or (laughs) elsewhere, it's with these wafer-thin majorities that then make them vulnerable in Congress, that make them vulnerable even in their own presidency. Pedro Castillo is now facing an impeachment process in Peru. So even as these uh, mass processes lead to the reinstallment of progressive and left leaders, because they are popular, because they were popular, because in many cases they were only deposed through these horrible legal warfare tactics, as we saw with Lula in 2018. It doesn't mean that they're coming into office with the strength to deliver the transformational change that people are desiring. And that is the main concern that we have, that you could end up even deepening the political disenchantment in a Pink Tai 2.0, where leaders are coming to power, promising that change and wanting to deliver it, but they're hamstrung or handicapped by the other dynamics uh, that uh, attend to those insecure majorities and very sophisticated mechanisms of legal warfare that can basically sabotage or throw sand in the gears of the transformational change that they're trying to implement. That was David Adler. We've been hearing from him and his colleague in the Progressive International, Matt Kierkegaard. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. I'm not fighting for justice. I am not fighting for freedom. I am fighting for my life and another day in the world here. I just do what I've been told. We're just the gravel on the road and only the lucky ones come. After the some of Tom Waits, with whom I share a birthday, performing his song Day After Tomorrow from 1994. We'll hear some of a freshly released cover of that song by Phoebe Bridgers at the end of the show. Next, trials and politics. There is a lot of disappointment, and count me among the disappointed, that Kyle Rittenhouse was exonerated for a couple of murders in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year. But do we expect trials to bear too much political weight, or to act as a substitute for politics? My next guest, Sarah Lustbader, had an excellent opinion piece on this topic in the New York Times last week, so I tracked her down for an interview. She's been a public defender in New York City for a decade and has seen how our so-called justice system works in all its mundane brutality. That is, for people who don't have $2 million defense funds, as Rittenhouse did. Sarah Lustbader. I wanted to talk to you because I've long thought that we expect trials to bear too much political weight or act as a substitute for political action. But you know, trials are very strange and specific things involving a whole bunch of laws and circumstances that are really contingent. They're not really about large forces like politics are. 
What do you think of that proposition? Do we expect trials, too much out of trials, that they're going to solve all kinds of political problems that they really can't? I definitely agree with that statement. And I think, I guess there's a few things that I would say about that. I think Americans are particularly fixated on trials, even more than people in other countries. I think we are sort of raised on this idea that if you throw the bad guy behind bars, then everything will go back to normal and things will be good. There's not a coincidence that Law & Order SVU is the longest running drama on television. It sort of seeped into our consciousness, this idea that, that we solve our problems by punishment. It should be very clear now that not only is that not a solution to our problems, but it's in fact become the problem. To respond to your point about politics, it's kind of messy because laws are the product of politics and procedures are often the product of politics and, and political wrangling. And in fact, sort of political structures and biases that dominate politics are also present at a micro level in each and every trial. And so we see those same things there. And it's not like those things don't exist. They do. And it's not like laws exist apart from politics. But any given trial is not a statement about any particular issue. It's it's really the application of laws to facts. And if they are applied in an unequal and unjust way because of the politics, because of biases and discrimination, that's true. But they can't be said to stand for anything more than that. The Rittenhouse trial disappointed a lot of people. The verdict disappointed a lot of people who wanted to see Rittenhouse punished for uh, violent enforcement of white supremacy. Was this really a good trial to make that point? It's a good question. I think I don't think any criminal trial should be brought to make a point. Criminal trials should be brought when, when the prosecution feels like they, they can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I do think that in this case, they could that the application of this particular self-defense law and these particular gun laws that were very permissive, the jury probably reached the correct verdict under the law. Now, it's not to say that if Kyle Rittenhouse were a Black defendant and he was accused of shooting a bunch of people at a Donald Trump rally, that the verdict would have gone the same way. I I think that it wouldn't have. Well, he probably would have been dead, right? Well, that's true. I don't think there would have been a trial. That's a great point. And we do see this again and again. And not only did he make it out of there alive, but the police officers didn't think that he was the shooter. He tried to surrender that night and they sort of pushed him away and said, sorry, we have to find a shooter, Uh, which just shows how at every single step of law enforcement and criminal justice, that these biases, mostly racial biases, pretty much inform every every action. So they're like, no, no, kid, we got to find the real shooter. Can't look like you. And then he did end up turning himself in a few days later. But when he did turn himself in, the police officers stopped questioning him, even though he hadn't asked for a lawyer, even though he hadn't uh, invoked his Miranda rights. They stopped questioning him because they thought that he didn't properly understand Miranda, which I have never seen happen in my years of representing uh, indigent defendants in New York. I wish that they could. (laughs) So in that case, yes, I do think that there was this idea that this young person who brought a semi-automatic rifle across state lines to a protest in this kind of weird law enforcement cosplay. Like he really loved cops. He fetishized cops. He wanted to be a cop and he liked to sort of act out the more sort of white supremacist parts of of law enforcement that he shouldn't have been there in the first place with that rifle, um, with that attitude. But once he was there, I do think that the prosecution did not meet its burden to prove that he was not acting in self-defense. And in that sense, the jury did reach the correct verdict, even though it's, it's not a morally satisfactory verdict, it is the, the legally correct verdict. But then we go back to your, your, your earlier point that uh, we think that punishment would be the correct resolution. And uh, that's part of the problem with our um, legal system. There's just too much punishment going around. Correct. I think that a lot of people are now calling for narrower self-defense laws. And I can tell you that if you narrow self-defense laws, I don't think that you will end up putting any Kyle Rittenhouses in prison, if that's your aim, but I do think you'll end up putting a lot of black and brown people in prison. What do you mean? Could you expand on that? Sure. I I think that when we, as a society, people will see a verdict and say, oh man, like this shouldn't have gone this way. I wish it were easier to convict people. When it's easier to convict people, the people who get convicted are less empowered and they're the people that, that frankly, I think that the, the criminal system functions to control. Uh, and those are low-income people of color. Uh, those are the people that, that end up bearing the brunt of it. And, and people like Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't think, will end up suffering 
much from any changes to the law that make the law more punitive. But we wouldn't have two million people in jail if we're that hard to convict people. Right. I look at that trial and I just, it is wild to me. I really wish any of my clients were given even the sort of like, not even the legal, but sort of the more non-legal deference and respect. And I think that there was one photo that came out during the trial where I think the judge was crouching behind Kyle Rittenhouse during the trial. I mean, in this way that was sort of familiar and he wasn't afraid of him. And when my clients are hauled into court on on far less serious charges often, they are treated as scary and criminal in a way that a judge would never approach them so familiarly. There was some speculation that the prosecution's heart really wasn't in it, that they kind of threw the case. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I had a debate actually with my husband about this uh, because I, I agree. I didn't think that the prosecution did a great job. I didn't know if it was that their heart wasn't in it or that they were not as good. Um, I thought that the prosecutor in the trial of the McMichaels and Mr. Bryant uh, for the shooting death of Ahmad Aubrey, that that prosecutor is much better. But there have been several high profile cases um, including the case of, I think, police officer, I think Michael Slager, who had shot someone who's running away. And the prosecutor in that case, Scarlett Wilson, also, I felt, was not putting in their all. And so my husband said, why would they not put in their all? This is their moment to shine. And I said, I don't know. I just think that it doesn't comport with, maybe it doesn't comport with their sense of what the justice system was set up to do. And in that sense, they might be correct. They kind of identify with cops, don't they? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's what I mean when I say this is, the, this is not what they thought they, they were signing up for, you know, when they became prosecutors and maybe they felt uncomfortable in that role. I mean, I have no idea, but I, I did get that sense that, that um, their heart wasn't in it in the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case. And then the judge um, was held in low regard by a lot, of, uh, a lot of commentators. How typical is somebody like him? I currently practice in court, so I can't make any statements about judges. But actually, um, what's typical about that judge is um, just how sort of idiosyncratic he is, or he seems to be that he's sort of this like character. People are often surprised when a judge doesn't conform to their idea of this stoic, omniscient, very formal person who's sort of uh, hidden behind a robe and doesn't show anything of their of their person. I think Judges often show a lot of character and sometimes, you know, that's great. And sometimes they're extremely sympathetic and thoughtful and other times it, you know, they can reveal biases and including discriminatory biases. And other times they're just kind of weird, you know, they're just kind of quirky. And I think that happens all the time and there's kind of nothing you can do about it. It's just the luck of the draw who you get as a judge. Right. Exactly. I mean, you can obviously appeal a ruling, but there's plenty of stuff that you just can't appeal or it doesn't really get to that level. And you just sort of, you have to live with with what you have. I mean, judges really are people. Some of the broader points you make in um, the New York Times piece, you said a guilty verdict would not have stopped police brutality or white supremacy. And it's pretty odd that uh, uh, Rittenhouse went on Tucker Carlson to say he supports Black Lives Matter, <laughs> whatever that means. Oh my God, but, I didn't you know, watch that, but ugh. Yeah, okay. he was, <laughs> I mean, he's universally uh, viewed, uh, or not universally viewed, but people on the left viewed him as some sort of uh, enforcement agent for white supremacy. And if he'd been found guilty, would white supremacy have taken much of a hit? No, of course not. I mean, you see this happen again and again, where whatever happens, if, if you know, I do think an acquittal was sort of seen as a vindication. And we will have to see, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying that that the acquittal will actually mean that more people will come to rallies and, and end up provoking violence and then claiming self-defense, you know, after causing harm. I hope that that's not the case. I don't think it's impossible. But I don't think that a, a guilty verdict would have convinced anybody that, oh, you know what, you're right. Like, <laughs> racism's bad. Um, I think that it would have sort of made him into something of a martyr or like seen as a political prisoner, for example, um, or the uh, victim of some unfair rigged process. I don't think it would have convinced anyone. I will say if the defendants in the case of the Ahmad Arbery shooting had been acquitted, I think that that would have been a pretty serious injustice. And, and again, I don't think that they're the guilty verdict in that case is going to solve any problems, but 
that was a case that I think the law as correctly applied should have resulted in a guilty verdict. And I think a not guilty verdict would have been deeply upset, unsettling. Whereas in the Rittenhouse case, um, the self-defense uh, defense was quite plausible. It was. From what I read and saw of the testimony, it did seem like a not outlandish claim. And, you know, I, I don't think that it was necessarily the wrong verdict. I'm speaking with Sara Lustbader, who works as a public defender in New York City. And then what about verdicts uh, against killer cops? Uh, is that going to change the nature of policing much if we find a few cops guilty? My hope is that, you know, when Derek Chauvin was convicted, and I wanted him to be convicted too, I have to admit, I was hoping for a conviction there, in part, again, because I thought that the law was so clear, given what we all saw on that video, it was hard to understand how anything other than, you know, a complete misapplication of the law would have resulted in a not guilty verdict. So when he was convicted, my hope was that people wouldn't say, oh, great, you know, the system really works. And in fact, you, you see that when a police officer engages in particularly egregious conduct, that of course, he or she goes to prison. But we all know that that's a real outlier and that police abuses happen every day. And very few of them are even publicly known. And the uh, Ahmad Aubrey's death was almost not brought to light. In fact, two prosecutors refused to bring charges on that case, one of whom herself is now being charged for the act of not charging anyone uh, in that killing. Um, it was only came to light when one of the defendants actually leaked the video or released the video because he thought that it was somehow exculpatory. And the reason that the two prosecutors didn't want to bring the charges in the first place was in part because one of the defendants had actually been a police officer and had worked in the DA's office uh, in that county. So the system really, truly almost didn't work in that case. So to say that that verdict or the Derek Chauvin verdict indicates that the system, in fact, works and that we, you know, we don't have to worry so much about changing the system, I think is a deep misunderstanding of what's going on. And in fact, I would much prefer that we not focus on these individual actors, not focus on how terrible Travis or Gregory McMichael is or Jarek Chauvin is and focus more on the systems that allow for white supremacy to dominate in, in law enforcement and to allow for, you know, for police officers to basically have almost unchecked power and almost free reign on the use of force over people. Yeah, I mean, if we want to uh, reform policing, we have to address the fact that it, its role is the violent enforcement of social hierarchy, race and class hierarchies. And a few guilty verdicts really wouldn't address that underlying uh, structure. Correct. And I think that, in fact, any verdict that seems to vindicate the system itself actually works in, in some ways in the wrong direction, because it tells people that the system we have is working. And it's not what you describe, which I think is correct, which is one that, that largely reinforces existing power structures, especially, you know, racial power structures. Yeah. And if you convict a few cops, then you can just say that they're bad apples, and but the rest of the barrel is okay. Correct. The bad apple idea is, I think, one of the most pernicious and, and one of the most widespread. I think, I don't know why. I think that for some, for people, it's just easier to blame a person. We've all had the experience of, of feeling frustrated with a person, but it's harder to feel frustrated at a system. Focusing on all these big trials, these you know, headline trials, does this distract from all the mundane horrors that go on in criminal courts around the country day to day? I mean, the kind of stuff you see every day. Um, people don't really pay much attention to that, do they? No. And I think that it not only distracts from it, but I think it eclipses it. I think people now think that the way Kyle Rittenhouse was treated in court is the way that defendants are treated in court, which couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, how would you describe the way your defendants are treated? they're sort of presumed guilty, if not of this, then of something else, even though they themselves have usually, so I, I am a public defender. I represent indigent people who can't afford an attorney. And I do so in New York city where, um, you know, many, many of my clients are, have had some of the toughest lives I've ever heard. And the, the life stories that I hear from my clients are pretty literally unbelievable at times it's gotten to the point where you can present mitigating evidence to a prosecutor and say, you know, here's a ton of mitigation. Here's why, you know, this person just really needs an opportunity to ever have succeed. And here's why, you know, prison would be counterproductive, et cetera. And they just sometimes will say, 
yeah, everybody's had it tough. Like as if that, <laughs> that makes it any less important for the individual or less meaningful, but their life circumstances are pretty unbelievable. And the way that they're treated um, is not commensurate with that. It's sort of, yeah, they're sort of treated like they've already, they've already done something wrong. And one other thing I kind of wish people understood that they don't always understand is that these high profile cases, especially cases of police brutality, often focus on really extreme and grotesque uh, episodes of police brutality. And those are real and widespread. But I also think people would be shocked if they understood the everyday degradation uh, that my clients have faced by police, especially during the stop and frisk era, which I don't think is totally over, despite a court ruling that it was unconstitutional. The way that they're sort of stopped while they're walking down the street and thrown up against the wall and searched and just sort of asked where they're going as if as if they couldn't possibly be going anywhere legitimate. They have no privacy. It's it's pretty degrading it kind of tugs at my heartstrings, especially when, when young police officers speak that way, especially to clients of mine who are elderly. I don't know, for some reason that really gets to me. Despite the formal end of stop and frisk, those practices are still going on. I think they are, you know, I can't give numbers and I'm not sure anyone could really give numbers because it's not documented in the same way. But um, I have seen cases, including cases on surveillance where police officers essentially stop and frisk people as if the 2013 injunction hadn't happened, saying that this was unconstitutional. And the beginning of your piece and at the end, you you say that your clients are often referred to as bodies. Uh, By whom and what exactly does that mean? Who says that? Yeah, it was something that struck me when I first started practicing public defense in, in 2010. I was in the Bronx at the time. And I would show up to an arraignment shift. So that's um, when you first meet your clients, when they've just been arrested, you know, a day prior or two days prior, um, and they're being held in. You meet them, you get their file, and, you, you know, you, you go in front of the judge, and the f- charges are formally read, and the judge decides whether to set bail. And you show up to a shift and say, like, maybe you'll ask the court officer, is it busy today? And they'll say, oh, no, you know, we only have, like, 200 bodies in the system. Or you might say to like um, a corrections person in the back, like, oh, can I go interview my client? And they'll say, oh, no, the bodies haven't been brought up yet. That's a context. Wow, that's really dehumanizing. (laughs) It's pretty shocking. And it was so, nobody batted an eye uh, at the time. And I was like, well, I guess that's just like the lingo and we have to kind of go along with it because you do kind of feel like you are in their world. Uh, And hopefully that's changing little by little or Big by big, I don't know. Yeah, well, they are the state, right? So <laughs> they're the ones who run the show. But you, you, at the, the conclusion of your piece, you say, um, maybe one day my clients will not be called bodies. Maybe they will be afforded the same dignity and deference given to Mr. Rittenhouse. We have a long way to travel before that could happen, don't we? Yes, we sure do. Um, and, you know, even better than that, I would say, would be to to really rethink the way that we approach conflict and harm in society. And, and I, I mean, I think like 75% of, of criminal prosecutions could be done away with without making anyone less safe. And even for more serious things, I really do believe that, that there are other ways to go about it than, than warehousing people. Um, so I would much rather that, and I would much rather like a broader implementation of, you know, restorative justice or, or just more thoughtful approaches to prosecution, or better yet, understanding what resources people need to begin with that would prevent any of these things from happening in the first place. I think an investment in, of the state in um, you know mental health resources, in in education. I mean, these things are not novel. What I'm saying, but I see every single day the complete failure of the system to serve my clients. And if that were addressed then my clients wouldn't really, I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, whether they're called bodies and arraignments because like, you know, we wouldn't really be relying on the system anymore. Finally, I saw you had a piece in the New York Review of Books, but they wouldn't let me read it because I don't subscribe. But you said this, the, <laughs> the system prevents um, forgiveness. Could you just say what you meant by that? And uh, what, sure. why, yeah, I mean, what, I what was, kind of forgiveness? A book um, about called When Should Law Forgive um, by Martha Minow, who is a former dean of Harvard Law School, and she's exploring different ways for law to incorporate forgiveness. One of the points 
in that piece was that the the way that our system is set up right now, opportunities for forgiveness are curtailed. And so, you know, you have basically automatic orders of protection put in place anytime there is a, a complainant or a victim in a case. And I have found often that the complainants in the cases want to talk to me, the defense lawyer, and they'll say like, all I want in this case is an apology. That's something that the law explicitly prevents And I also think that these approaches are seen as soft, this idea of restorative justice as soft, as sort of um, mealy mouth somehow. But the truth is that the way our system works now, where you get assigned an attorney, you're not allowed to talk to the other side, you know, this side talks to this side, and and I'm supporting my client and, and, you know, we're in different camps and we're siloed. And then ultimately, you know, either it's an adversarial system by definition, right? Exactly. It's adversarial. And so, you know, in the end, like we either beat the case and, and you high five and go home or, you, you know, your client ends up doing some time. But nowhere in that process is anyone asked to reflect or to confront any harm they may have caused for the clients of mine who have caused harm. It would be harder in some ways to really confront that even outside a prison. And it would be more productive than it would be just basically, you know, put people in prison for a few years and just demoralize them and degrade them more and expose them to all sorts of more trauma and violence and then release them back out onto the street. And whenever anything goes wrong and they can't get a job, they say, oh man, you messed up again. Like, I don't think that that is emotionally taxing. And in a way it's, you know, of course, way too taxing. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a mismatch. That was Sarah Lustbader, a public defender in New York City. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, Phoebe Bridger's freshly released version of Tom Waits' song, Day After Tomorrow. Till next week, bye. I'm not fighting for justice. I am not fighting for freedom. I am fighting for my life and another day. Just do what I've been told Just the gravel on the road And only the lucky ones come home On the day after tomorrow In the summer It brings the winter's frost here And I know we too are made Of all the things that we have lost